October 21st is the next federal election. And accordingly, this morning, what I'm going to do is tell you how to vote and who to vote for. Now that I have your attention, and as I look around and see a few people bending down looking for things to throw at me, um, let me tell you a story. Most of you know that I grew up in Saskatchewan, and my dad worked for many years for the provincial government of Saskatchewan in a fairly senior managerial role. And we had strong political leanings in our family growing up. But during his time working, all three of the different parties were in power. At first it was the Liberals when he started out as a young man, and then a little later it was the NDP for a number of years, and then finally the Conservatives. And as we would be at home, one of the things he would talk to us about is he would say, you know, there are times where they'll do things, the governing party, that I don't necessarily agree with. Didn't go against my principles, but I just would have done it differently because I am working for them technically and for the people of Saskatchewan. I choose to be loyal. And if there was ever a time where they asked me to compromise my principles, I'd have to step away. But I choose to be loyal, and so even though at times I don't agree with the political leanings of the particular party that was in power, um, I continue to work in that place. But also, he said to us, he never said to us, you can't do this, but it was, he said, listen, the better part of wisdom when you're an employee for the government of Saskatchewan is not to talk politics and be open and overt. And so we never put signs on the lawn or got a party membership or anything like that. But we had strong political leanings because he said, you know, even though politicians, some of them at least, will say they believe completely in freedom of speech, some of them believe in that more than others. And so it's probably just not wise to talk politics openly in society when you work for the government. And so we would talk about them privately, but not publicly. My grandfather was very different than that. My grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, was a believer as well. He was a Christian as well, but he had extremely strong political leanings. And he was very overt about those leanings. He put signs on the lawn. He had a party membership. He went to all the meetings, and he was very fervent in his belief system about that. And he talked about it a fair bit. When I became a pastor, he was quite concerned. My friend, Sean Humphreys, my grandfather never came and talked to me about this directly, but my friend, Sean Humphreys, said, you know, your grandfather is really concerned about you. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, he said he was talking to me about this, and he says, you know, Scott's a pastor, and he should be using the pulpit to make political statements. And he said, you know, like he's got a position of relative influence. People seem to listen to him at least once in a while. And uh, he should be using the pulpit to make these statements. But he never came and talked to me about this, my grandfather. Years went by, and it was election time again. And it was the Christmas season. Election was coming soon. And uh, our family all got together, and in fact, we were at my grandfather's house. 
And uh, more than 20 people from our family were there. And I remember it very clearly. Uh, I was in the kitchen, and the stove was right here, and I was leaning against the counter, kind of like this, and there's a little table over there and cupboards around the room and a doorway over there. And Debbie was in the kitchen, but she was on the other side of this fairly small kitchen. And around through the, the doorway and past the fridge, my grandfather comes, and he comes right up to me. And he says to me, well, I want to know what you're going to do about this election. Now, like some politicians, not all of them, but some of them, I kind of just tactfully uh, never answered the question, even though I kind of seemingly did. And I kind of just gave some, you know, basic answer. And then I said, well, you know, I think probably based on the latest polls, this particular party is going to win. And he took a step forward and he actually started to poke me in the chest. And he said, no, no, I want to know who you are going to vote for in this election, because after all, I've been good to you, and you owe me. <laughs> now, I know you find this really hard to believe, but I became quite angry at that point, and I said to him, I will never vote for that party because of their beliefs on this and this and this. And he didn't like that too much. And so he started coming at me again. Meanwhile, Debbie had kind of was hovering on the peripheral of this conversation, and I turned to her and I said very forcefully, I said, we are leaving right now. Even though it was very early in the evening, much before we would have gone. Because I'm about to, I didn't say this to him, I said it to her later, I was about to say something I knew I would really regret. And a lot of people in my family uh, were and still are non-Christians, and they had uh, a very... uh, Well, let me put it this way. They didn't like Christians too much. So I didn't want them to hear this stuff going on, this fight. And uh, we left. We packed up and we left very early, like 7.30 or something like that. Later that night, my grandfather called and he did something he had never done up until that point in my life. And he never did again in my life before he died a few years ago. He sincerely apologized. And he said, you know, I was way out of line. Please forgive me. And you know, that takes a lot of courage. I had really admired him for that. Because we've all done things we shouldn't do. I certainly have. And when we do that, we humble ourselves. We admit our wrongs. We don't make excuses, which he didn't do. He didn't minimize his behavior, which was really way out of line. He just asked for forgiveness. And my grandfather and I had never had a close relationship prior to that. And after that, we just continued to have the same kind of relationship, just kind of a reasonable one. We just never talked politics ever again. Now, in light of that story, let me go ahead and tell you which party to vote for, and there's going to be a place in the lobby where you can sign up for memberships. Not really appropriate, is it? For me to stand in the pulpit and do that. But what I will do is I will ask the question, you know, does God offer any principles from Scripture for us on the issue of politics and political involvement and who should be in power and things of that nature. We're in this series of messages right now called I'm In, But, and the premise of, the, of this whole series is that we, we can believe in God, 
we can have a relationship with God through Christ, like Pastor Aaron illustrated through communion earlier, where our sins have been forgiven, we've admitted our sins, we've asked Jesus to forgive us of our sins, we've received him as Savior, we've invited him to be the Lord of our life, but we've then said, you know, in this area of my life, you're sort of persona non grata. I don't want you to touch. I don't want you to try and influence. I don't want you to, I'm not going to open myself up to you in this particular area. So in other words, I'm in, but. And that really when we approach life like that, practically speaking, we're acting like in that particular area, I'm saying either God doesn't exist or what he says just doesn't matter. And so this morning we're going to look at the idea of I'm in, but don't you dare touch my politics. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, which is about a third of the way through the Old Testament. If you come to Joshua and Judges, those kind of books, just keep going to the right. If you come to Kings or Chronicles, you've gone a little too far. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. And as I read, I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Now, in that time, in the, era, in the nation of Israel, they operated under what's called a theocracy. So God was like their leader, their king. He was the one in charge, and he would speak through his prophets. And one of the key prophets, if not the key prophet in that era, was the prophet Samuel. And so the elders were people that just kind of looked after the day-to-day activities of the nation, but really God was in charge. Everybody understood that, at least in theory. And he spoke to them primarily through Samuel. The elders said to Samuel, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants." He will take a tenth of your grain and all of your vintage and give it to your officials, to his officials and attendants. Your manservants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. 
When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, go back to your own town. So people, ever since God had miraculously, supernaturally helped them move out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, uh, had been pushing back over and over again against God's leadership in their life. And at times they had just really gone and worshipped other gods or they would grumble or they would do things to sort of uh, countermand the leadership of God. And so they would do this, but now the time had come that they had worked up the courage to really formalize that. Samuel, who was, as I said, the main prophet, was old. He was going to be dying pretty soon. He had, there was no immediate successor to this role, at least in the elders' opinion, or at least that was their excuse. And so they go to him and say, give us a king, because we want to be just like everyone around us. We want to blur the distinction between this overtly Christian nation and the idol-worshipping pagans all around us. And God says, this is a huge mistake. You'll regret it. And then he tells them why. He's going to conscript your sons into the military, and they will be slaughtered in the pursuit of the king's dreams. Your daughters will be forced to serve in the court. The king will want a big palace and he'll want lots of cash for his numbered Swiss bank account. And guess who's going to pay for that? You and you and you will be forced to do labor on behalf of the king for free. He will drive around in his Range Rover chariot, surveying the land. He'll take the best produce, the best animals, and the best land for himself. And taxes. Pay those taxes. Even back then, there was two things you could be sure of, death and taxes. At points, it will become so difficult and so bad, you will beg God to go back to the way it was. Get rid of this king that we asked you for, and the Lord will not say yes to your prayer. Are there some principles in this passage for us as we face election 2019? Oh, I think there is. And the first one would be, and it's very clear, we get the government we deserve. We will get the government we ask for and we deserve. It's absolutely true that it says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. But if we steadfastly refuse to God's direction on who should be in charge, just like the Israelites did, he doesn't force us. He warns us over and over again. But ultimately, because he's given us the ability to choose, he will allow us as a nation to have what we desperately want. 
Even though he warned this nation over and over again, you're going to regret this decision. You're going to beg me to overturn it. On that day, I won't. So don't go down this path. But they choose to do it anyway. He says your society will suffer and you will suffer individually as long as you continue to take um, fully aware steps away from biblical principles. If you make the choice to keep stepping away from biblical principles in the way this nation is run, in the way you act as an individual, you will regret that day. It's exactly the same today. When we as a nation make decisions that step away from biblical principles, which are the very best way to do life, we will reap the whirlwind. Just ask yourself in your lifetime, how have we been doing as a nation? Think about it. Objectively. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about voting because the democratic process is a relatively recent invention. Uh, to put leadership in place, there was a variety of methods they would use. Typically, they just relied on God to supernaturally show them who to do it. At points, they would cast lots, and they would say, God, would you show us through the casting of lots? In the New Testament, the, Paul would just go around, and we're told that he would just appoint elders. So he would just choose godly people, and he would appoint them as elders. There were times where in the Old Testament, where God, like when he would choose a king, they would just supernaturally select one, and then they would anoint them with oil. And so there was numbers of different ways that they would do it, not voting as we would understand it. And yet there was numbers of believers in the Bible and biblical accounts who were involved in the political office and political processes, people that were commended for doing this. So there's people like, and I'll just mention a few of them, Mordecai and Esther and Nehemiah and David and Joseph and Deborah, who was a judge over the nation of Israel. And Christians are told in Matthew 5 to be salt and light in our world. And so I would argue that our participation in politics, just like in any other part of life, has the opportunity inherent with it to flavor the culture with the approach God would have. And that this is an important thing to do. We're called in the scriptures to seek the good of our society. We're called to be involved in restraining evil, to be involved in helping to choose between legitimate alternatives. I'm not talking about the compromise of principle, but appropriate compromises to help set priorities in the nation and in the community. And so when we are involved in the political process from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, we have the opportunity to flavor the society and the community in a way that's best for that society. And it's an incredible privilege to vote. And that so many in our world don't enjoy this. Think of the dictators in our world that never allow that kind of freedom. So how does being a biblical believer impact, or how should it impact at least, my life in politics or my involvement in politics? How should it 
affect how I vote and how I'm involved? Let me suggest three or four things. First of all, and I think this is a key question we ask whatever we do in life, ask God how I should vote. Who should I vote for, God? That should be the first question. God, who should I vote for? Now, someone says, well, what about that little principle they have down in the United States that we've sort of allowed to morph up here into Canada of the clear separation of state and church? And absolutely, there's some truth to that. But they've taken that, those that want to secularize the society and humanistic approach, and they've morphed out of that, and they've warped that kind of thinking, because there is some truth to that. So just by way of example, last time I checked, we're not sending any money out of the general fund of the church to the government of Canada to buy tanks for the military. Because that's kind of an exclusive thing of the government to provide a military of some sort and to provide law and order. And that's what they're called on to do. So we don't send any money out of the general fund to buy tanks for the government. On the other hand as well, the government isn't offering to help us, at least they're not yet, and I hope they never do like they do in some parts of the world. I hope they, they've never tried to help us serve communion. So there are a number of separate things and separate rules that the government does over here and we do over here. But at the same time, as I said, those that want to secularize and, who, and have humanistic views, um, they want to bring from that and say, your faith should have zero impact in the political realm. This is a lie from the pit. Because if our relationship with God is not an umbrella approach to life that impacts every part of our life, every decision we make, every approach we take, it's not much of a faith. And if I know anything about scripture, one of the things I know is that God demands to be first in our life. And he wants to flavor and influence and impact every choice we make. And as I said, it's, if we don't allow it to be preeminent and touching all the parts of our life, it's not much of a faith. It's certainly not a biblical faith. And so when it comes to who you vote for, I think the first question be, should be, God, who do you think I should vote for? Would you give me wisdom on that? I checked just this past week. There's 21 registered parties to vote for. Um, here in Canada. And of course, some of them are a bit of a joke, and some of them, perhaps many of them, are you know, sort of semi-serious or whatever. But there's a lot of parties, not that many perhaps in our particular riding, but there's a number of parties, and who knows how many different candidates. Have we asked them? And so some of you are sitting there thinking, you mean, Scott, are you mean to be suggesting, Scott, that, that God might actually want to influence or even change my vote? Absolutely. I don't know if he will. Probably not. But he might. But have we sincerely asked him, who do you want me to vote for? And how do you want me to assist in the process, in the political process? What level of involvement might you want me to have? The second thing would be just to think. And I think there's less thinking about stuff like this going on 
in our society. As the Bible says, as I referenced just a few minutes ago in Matthew 5, we're called to be salt and light in society, to say, I'm going to seek to live biblical principles out in the way and in the choices and in the priorities of my life. And I heard not, recent, not long ago one of the political commentators who, you're going to hear this every time there's an election, one of them will make this comment. They'll say, and the person said this just a few days ago, we know that the voters' wallets dictate where their votes go. And whenever I hear that, which I hear at every election, I think how shallow and pathetic and sad. Sure, money is important. I'm not saying it's not. And we absolutely want it to be used in a responsible manner so that it can have the greatest impact and influence in a really healthy way to help not only our own nation, but different nations in the world. And this is one of the things we're known for, which I think is a really good thing. And it's certainly one of the personal considerations I think about when I consider who am I going to vote for. I look at how are they going to manage those kind of things? What's their plan? And these are great questions to ask. But as Christians, we have a higher calling and a greater responsibility than solely worrying about how much money I have in my pants. Stuff way more important than that. So think about this stuff. And ask yourself, what are the biblical principles as I go to vote, as I go to participate, however I am led by God to participate, what are the biblical principles that are at play here? Because as I often say, I've probably already said it today, it's the best way to do life and it's the best way to flavor in a healthy way our society. And then which candidate and, and maybe which party, bearing in mind in our parliamentary system that an individual MP, as we talk federal politics here in particular, has impact and influence, but they have limited autonomy because of our political system, which has its own strengths and weaknesses, right? And so they have impact, but it's limited by the party system. So which individual and perhaps even which party best represents those things that are near and dear to my heart that God's put in my heart? And there's many places to get this information, and so I encourage you to educate yourself. Don't just follow the polls or, you know, follow whatever. Think about it, pray about it. It's important. Thirdly, participate. Participate. Just like the character Samuel was and some of those other characters I talked to you about. Um, every poll that I've ever seen, at least in recent years, indicate that biblical believers are more likely to write letters, emails, to vote, to contribute to the political process than the general population by percentage, which is a wonderful thing. Being involved in the political process is a good thing to do. To volunteer to help your candidate, and if you want to put up a sign or whatever, those kind of things on your yard, good stuff to do. To question the candidates, go to those all-party things. What do they stand for? Try to influence them in a good way. And maybe you should run for office. That might be a really good thing to do. If God leads you to do that, really good thing to do. And of course, pray for those that God has put in authority over us. 
even when you don't agree with their decisions. Because remember, these people, they have it difficult often. You have to have really thick skin to do that job. And I, I believe in my heart, even when I disagree with whatever this individual or whatever that party, wherever we're talking, sometimes the decisions they make, I believe the bulk of them have our best interests in mind. And sure, there's going to be some rotten apples, just like in every segment of society. But I think most of them are trying to do their best. And I know that's hard to hear because Canada, we're known as one of the most cynical nations. That's what the sociologists would say. One of the most cynical nations in the world. And so it's normal for us to assume the worst. But I think that many of them are trying their best at great cost often. So pray for those that God puts in authority over us. Finally, I encourage you really encourage you to go vote. As I said, we're more likely biblical believers to do this kind of thing than the general population, and that's good, but not everybody does. And we should all vote. There's almost no excuse not to vote. You'd really have to work hard to find one not to vote. So I encourage you to be involved. I encourage you to vote. You know, the children of Israel didn't want God formally as their leader, and it cost them dearly. They regretted it as a nation. And whenever a nation takes steps away from biblical principles, just study history. When you walk away from those principles, you see regret in that nation. Maybe not right away, but over the long term, you absolutely do. We will get the government we ask for. Have we asked God? Heavenly Father, who do you want me to vote for? And how might you want me to participate? I'm open to whatever you'd lead me to do. So what I want us to do right now is I want us to pray about the process. And what we're going to do is we're going to take one or two minutes of just silence where you can pray individually. Maybe pray for your MP. Maybe pray about the election. Pray for the different leaders of the parties. Whatever you want to do, however you feel led. Maybe start out with that question, God, how do you want to lead me in this process? And then after one or two minutes of prayer, I'm going to pray just to end that time. And then finally, when you're leaving this morning on the, ta on the tables at the doors as you exit, there's a little brochure about how to pray for our government. And so different positions are listed, so you could pray for the prime minister or the different leaders of the opposition parties or the different cabinet ministers or our own MP or those running in this, in this, in this area. And then there's probably about 15 biblical principles they've listed here about how to pray um, from Scripture for the people that are in authority over us. So I think it's a helpful little tool. And I encourage you to just pick one up. Uh, there's probably enough for one for family or something like that. And just pick it up and use it as a guide. So we're going to take a minute or two of just silence to pray. And then I'll conclude um, that time in prayer myself. Let's do that.
So, Father, thank you so much that you're in charge, that you're sovereign, that you've never given that up, you've never relinquished that, and yet, at the same time, in a way that we don't totally understand, you allow us this freedom to choose. And so we're grateful for your sovereignty and yet your freedom at the same time. And so, Lord, we thank you for the blessing of living in Canada. What an incredible blessing to be a part of this country that enjoys just so many good things. Thank you for that. Thank you that we can pray openly and have a service like this where so many places in the world, uh, that's just not possible. In fact, many places in the world where people are suffering and dying for their faith every day. And so, Lord, thank you that we live here in this way. And, Lord, we pray now for this coming election. We pray for your choices to be put into place, not just that we might, you know, sort of selfishly desire, but what you lead. Would you begin in my heart, but in our hearts And may you use us to help flavor the culture in a way that reflects you well. We would pray, Father, for those that are going to be elected or be in opposition or whatever the case may be. Lord, they're going to get put in places where it's really tough. And I I think this is always a good thing in life because when when it's overwhelming, we tend to look outside ourselves for help. We humble ourselves, and I pray that they look to you. I pray that they would seek wisdom from on high, like it talks about in James 1. I pray when they have to make those cutting-edge decisions about, is this a matter of principle on which I can't compromise, or a matter on which it's legitimate for me to be flexible, help them to know the difference, Lord. Help them to choose what it's right. Help them not to just govern by what the latest poll says, which some of them might be tempted to do. Help them to have the courage to make the right choice. And this is part of what being a real leader is. And so we pray, Father, that you would bless in that. We pray that you would lead. And we ask these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.